continuing on with the introduction to John. It's the, the same title, The Reality of Christ. I just call it part two. And kind of diving into the idea of reality, we like uh, oftentimes to avoid reality. Uh, it's the proverbial sticking our head in the sand, which the poor ostrich is accused of doing. By the way, they're not sticking their head in the sand just to get away from reality, but instead they're actually turning their eggs over. So uh, they've been misqualified as, uh, or misclassified as people that are sticking their head in the sand uh, for absolutely no reason. But regardless, uh, we understand the propensity to avoid reality, to go out of our way, to miss what is true so that we can continue living in our fabricated world, our fabricated reality. Sadly, that propensity uh, manifests itself as well in the area of eternity. It crops up when dealing with who we really are and to whom we are accountable. Uh, we live in a world today that ignores the fact that we will answer to God. Uh, most people spurn that, mock that, laugh at that, uh, and yet they're just living in a fabricated reality. Their head's in the sand. They will answer for who they are, not who they perceive themselves as being, but who they really are in God's eyes. But we, we tend to run from that. Instead of uh, pursuing truth and actually seeing it, humankind has spent centuries inventing their own faiths so that they can ignore the fact of sin and punishment, so that they can play God of their own lives. And it's a habit that continues into today and has even filtered into the church uh, the world has done everything in its power to twist and turn truth, to deny absolute truth even, so that they can remain delusional and pretend to be in control. How does the church do that? Well, we put a, a nice veneer on it so it, it seems smoother. We give the semblance of religion while maintaining our own authority. And by doing that, we deny the authority uh, to the one who truly has it, which we can't deny him his authority. We just, again, shove our head in the sand and refuse to see what's there. And so as we saw last week, uh, the gospel of John will not give us that luxury, that we will not be able to wander as we work through his gospel specifically, and his introduction is very focused and actually encompasses the whole book. He, he, he introduces all the thoughts here, uh, as a good writer typically would, and that's going to carry through. You cannot grab that general faith idea and be okay with it if you truly understand the gospel of John. Faith is not some general belief in the higher being or entity. It is not belief in even a specific entity of your own making. True saving faith is found in a specific person. It is placed in the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, who has come to earth to die for humanity so that we can have real eternal life through him. And now John is, in his introduction, going to focus us in on this final portion on that specific arrival, Christ coming to earth to redeem those who believe. And that's where he wants us to look now. Uh, he's boldly been proclaiming the reality of Christ. And if you remember how it starts, he's going to talk about the word was existing for all eternity, that it was with God, that it is God, and he's walked through so many different things. And now he's going to zero us in on the truth that Jesus, God, came in the flesh to accomplish his eternal purpose of salvation. He's looking at the incarnation. This is the physical coming to earth of Jesus. This is 
The reason for the season, which is a trite same statement I know we hear but don't lock into. This is why we celebrate Christmas. It is God coming uh, to earth. And, and John kind of starts that conversation as he's working through his introduction by highlighting two things. Uh, as Leon Morris writes, he highlights the astonishing fact that the Word of God, true God as He is, took upon Him human nature. And then the other possibly more astonishing fact that when He did this, many people would have nothing to do with Him. When we look at this idea of Christ coming to earth, and then we actually, and John doesn't shy away from it, articulates how many people decide that they want nothing to do with life and with light. Yet the reality of Christ, as we see him prophesied in Scripture, perfectly matches his reception. How is he received in the world? Look at verses 9 through 13 of chapter 1. He says, that was the true light. And he's just talked about John the Baptist who brought uh, a witness of the light. And, it, and later on in the Gospels, he's talked about being a light that shines, but it's a light that shines about the true life. So he's making sure the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So here is Christ, the true light, who enlightens everyone in some sense. He, he can be the light there. He's come into the world. And he goes on, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Then he goes, but as many as received him, to them gave he power, and the word there is more right or privilege or opportunity, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you go in your Bibles to Romans 1, 18 through 21, that passage is one of the most uh, abundantly clear passages stating the responsibility of humanity to God in light of general revelation. It states this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the in invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And what Paul is writing here is saying, everyone is culpable in God's eyes because what God has given just in the world around us speaks to who he is, and speak specifically to him being in charge, his eternal power, his Godhead. And it goes on, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. That's what Paul writes about general revelation, about anyone who steps out of their home, teepee, hut, whatever, they are accountable to God because what can be known about God is revealed to them. That's Paul saying that. John is writing here, and he says that Jesus, when he came to earth, he is the true life. He brought the fullest revelation of God. And the point that we have to grasp is this. If creation makes us accountable, then even more so the true light coming. And that's what John is trying to bring out. He is, God, Christ is the true light that gives light to every man when he came to earth. As John MacArthur remarks, even those who never become children of God are accountable for the knowledge of God and his light revealed 
in Christ. Everyone, no matter what their circumstance is, no matter what their story is, no matter what their background is, no matter what excuse they give, is accountable to the reality that Christ came to earth, that he is here. The fact that creation speaks clearly and responsibly of God only emphasizes the impact of the creator coming to his creation and the impact of that light, that revelation upon them. And John wants you to feel that weight. God, and how did he create? Well, he's already told us that through Jesus Christ created this world. This world is accountable to Jesus Christ and even more so, not that God needs more, even more so by the fact that that creator came to earth. Yet the first response to such an obvious and amazing revelation was that people rejected him. And that has to weigh in. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming in the world. He's in the world. The world is made through him, but the world will not know him. He comes to his own. And that word for own in Greek literally means he came home. He comes home amongst the Jewish people and his own people did not receive him. And it's, it's important to get the weight of this. The creator comes to his creation. It's a creation that is destined for death eternally because of their sin. And that creation, what he has made, chooses in a general sense not to recognize him, to purposely reject him. And to further make that horrific point clear, John states that Christ came home to the people called by God from the beginning of their existence. The Jews at this time would say they're God's people, and their identity as a people started when God called Abraham, and that's the start of their nation. So their whole existence as an entity, as a group, as a definable uh, nationality, is all began when God called them to be his people. And when Christ comes to the called out people, the ones who he entrusted the word of God with, the ones who had scripture up to date, whatever you're reading in the New Testament about scripture, they're referring to Old Testament scripture. They're talking about what they had there. And when he comes, the one who made them, the one who called them, they reject him. And so right off the bat, as you're reading John, you think, what an interesting introduction to tell us about people who don't believe, to articulate this before we talk about any that do believe. Why this response and why to this degree? Well, John 3, 19 through 20 explains it. It says, and this is the condemnation, the judgment, the, the decision that comes down, that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus is the true light, and those living in darkness cannot stand true light. Why? Because they don't want to be confronted with their sin. They hate the light. They'll mock the light. They'll joke about the light. They'll be distant from the light. And I want to speak to people that maybe are even seated here. You might be here, but you're stiff-arming, in, in some sense, the light. Because ultimately, you're evil. That's what the Bible says. Because ultimately, you don't want to recognize who you are. And so they refuse to know the Messiah in a saving way. You might know the Christmas story. 
You may be able to recount it. You may even talk of believing in it. But is there a knowledge, a true knowledge in a saving way? Have you been confronted with who you are? Yet, as we look at his reception, how he's received is not totaled up in the fact that people rejected him. Even so, by the way, in rejection, Christ's reality is not altered at all by humanity's response because God's plan is in no way thwarted or confused by a response of rejection. Uh, just as an illustration, Psalm 76.10 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. In other words, even though a host of people, even though John's first illustration of Christ's reception is they wanted nothing to do with him. To make the point crystal clear, the people who should have been waiting eagerly for him should have known because Scripture was clear about him coming. Those people rejected him. But that in no way changes the reality of Christ. It actually only proves it. Humanity's hardness and sin-centeredness will never detract from the truth of who he is and what he came to do. And so despite the act, acted upon desire to not know the light, to unpurposely not know the light, by many there are still untold people that received him. It says, but, which is a major shift of focus, but to those who have received him, who have believed on his name. That's what it means to receive. And by believe on his name, when, when you are referencing name to us, name is just, that's my name. People change their name. If they don't like their name, they don't like their family, they don't like whatever it is about it, they'll just, nothing is vested in a name for us like it was in ancient times. When they use the word name, it means that you believe in the whole of who Christ is, his complete nature and his complete work. Those who believe in everything about Christ, they're brought into God's family. They're given the right, and, and some translations will say power, ability, privilege, to be his children. It might say sons, but the word is technia, which is children. It's, it's the idea of being brought in to the family. This is not a simple credence. This is, this is more than just a statement you'll make. To believe in involves personal appropriation and commitment. It is not just mere intellectual knowledge of his claims. It is a belief in. It is a complete commitment in. And what we're encountering here as John goes from non-believers to believers are true believers. They're born into God's family. And then he says something about the new birth. They're born into God's family. He says, not by blood. And what he's saying there is not by heritage. It's not because you're a Jew that you are able now to claim that you're saved. It's not because you're an American. It's not because you have a history. It's not because I still remember talking to somebody uh, years ago. It was actually a, a homeless individual that was coming through, uh, sleeping on the porch because there's a nice breeze there. And so I was chatting with him and just sharing some... Obviously, they don't want a bunch of things to carry around with them, uh, but I had a small little thing, a pamphlet, Ultimate Questions by John Blanchard, which is my preferred uh, entry point for evangelism. So I was just talking to him, and his first response to me was, yeah, my grandfather was a, a, a chaplain in the army. And Christ would say, big deal. It's not by heritage. 
your bloodline doesn't save you. And then he says, not by flesh. And that meaning is not by physical, personal desire. It's not the result of this physical world at all. There's no husband-wife relationship that is going to bring out a child of faith. And then not by man, meaning not by a system created by humanity. John, in a, in a very short minute, obliterates any cult that's out there, any human-derived system of worship or faith. It knocks all of that away. He's knocking the foundation out from underneath uh, current Judaism in that sense, where they're going to say, well, we're waiting for the Messiah. And he's saying, no, you're not. You're not reborn. No system that you create. Uh, the need for spiritual rebirth is introduced here along with what rebirth is not. And this, this topic in John is expanded in chapter 3, which is a very involved look at what it means to be reborn, to be born again. And it actually contains, in that conversation with Nicodemus, one of the most famous verses in Scripture, which we all can quote, or unless you have to stand up here and suddenly quote it, and then you forget it. It just slips out of your mind. But we know it. But that verse is sitting in one of, the, one of the deepest theological discussions on what it means to be saved and what it involves. But there's, there's a critical need. John mentions this on purpose now because in John's day and today, it's important to make clear the true nature of salvation. One commentator so aptly stated, he said, the piling up of these expressions, because that's what it feels like, not by blood, not by flesh, not by the will of man, so listing all the things that rebirth is not, why, why does John layer those on like that? And that's because at his time, there was a high uh, level of Jewish pride of race. Jews held that because of the fathers, that is their great ancestors, God would be favorable to them. If you look at Christ's encounter with the Pharisees, whenever they get stumped, they're like, our father is Abraham. And of course, he almost gets stoned when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And oh, how dare you say that? That's the beginning of being a Jew. How could you be before that? How could you have preeminence in that moment? But John is emphatically repudiating any such idea. That's what he's throwing out to those that are reading it. You are not reborn because of who you are by any physical means or relationship or desire that this world can create, and definitely not by some system that you come up with to have faith. Nothing human, however great or excellent, can bring about the birth of which he speaks. Another person remarks, no human endeavor can achieve the spiritual birth here described. And that's what Nicodemus wrestles with. In chapter 3 of John, and we kind of lock in on John 3.16, which is a critical verse, but it sits at the end of the argument. He is addressing this idea that you're not accomplishing this. The reality is we struggle with the same thoughts today. We may not have Jewish pride of race, but we find comfort in the heritage of our faith. A host of people will tell me, well, my parents, you know, they were strong believers. Okay, it doesn't seem like they won their children to Christ, but we'll keep talking. Or I have ancestry here. I've, I'm, I'm American, so I'm not this, so I must be that kind of idea. No, that's actually not how rebirth unfolds. We find comfort in our heritage, or 
in our manipulations of what faith demands, right? We'll look at the scripture and we'll say, well, I'll accept this part, but I'm not going to accept that. And we're comfortable. The crazy thing is we're, we're, we think that we can cut out sections of what God says at will because we don't, we don't like it. Our culture doesn't like it. it. It throws them off. Or we give ourselves permission to believe what we want and nothing more. Yet as Ernest Harrison states, John's gospel spells out as no other does the crisis of confrontation. And that's what I'm driving to in this first port, uh, portion of his reception. What, what is the point that John is trying to make here that you will be confronted with Jesus Christ? Harrison said, what will men do with Jesus the Christ? So I asked that question of all of us. What will you do with all of who Jesus is? Not just the part you're comfortable with acknowledging. Not the part that fits your life. I'm talking about everything he is and all that he demands. And by the way, if you've ever heard that it's just easy street to be a Christian, it's not. God asks everything of you, and rightfully so. Real faith will take your life, every inch of it, every part of it. But let me be a little bit more direct and personal. What are you doing with him right now? Have you believed completely in him, or is your faith more general? And I ask that question, Paul tells us in Corinthians, examine yourself. Examine yourself to see if you are of the faith. Examine yourself if you are a true believer. But the reality, I don't think it's my phone or someone else's. But, um, examine yourself. Know if you are saved. And, and that's what John is saying here. Do you believe in Christ completely? Is that who your faith is in? Is that who your trust it is? Or is it a general faith? And then I'll remind you, the gospel of John has never given us permission to have a general faith. There is no such thing as a general faith. And if you say, I have a real complete faith in Jesus Christ, then the next question is, are you truly living out that belief as God's word makes clear? And next week, we dive into the, the, the broader uh, testimony of John the Baptist. And what you're going to find in John the Baptist and, and what he's called to do is a man that, that fulfills what God asked him to do to the uttermost, that he commits everything of his life to doing what God has said. So I'm hoping we see as we've walked through the reality of Christ is that John has proven the reality of Jesus Christ. He's left no room for hemming and hawing, and so now he moves to close his introduction with an overview of his purpose or Christ's purpose. And we look now at 14 through 18. Interestingly enough, John's prologue, which is 1 through 18, what they would call it as introduction, summarizes the whole book of John. And then verses 14 through 18 summarize the prologue. So he is now woven into what he wrote is an introduction that also has its own summary tucked at the end. And, and John is, is masterful in how the Holy Spirit used his writing, where Paul is profound doctrine that you work through, John appears always like lightly simple on the surface, and there's always massive depth that goes with it. And so it's not that he has two meanings, it's just that his meaning has always got a second 
nature to it, a second thought to it. And so I want to encourage you as you're reading through John, you might breeze over something, but you really need to, to, to dig deep and understand. Uh, his introduction summarizes everything he writes in 20 chapters. It's masterful writing. Uh, it's how you're taught quote-unquote, to write in school sometimes, is introduced in a paper. And so he does it in a beautiful way. So here is his reintroduction of the introduction, which introduces the whole book. How about that? So it's a, a two-part two introduction. He says, the, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And that's the preexistence of Christ right there in a, in a sentence. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, speaking of an intimate relationship, he hath declared him. And so, as I mentioned, here John artfully summarizes his summary. And while doing that, he's simultaneously refuting uh, heretical views about Jesus that have already begun to swirl around. And actually, in the first five centuries of the church, constantly kept coming up. Many people were denying that God actually came and became a man. Uh, they believed that he just came and embodied a guy named Jesus for a time. Others taught that Jesus was a created being. Yet regardless of the take, and there's a whole heap more of them through those first centuries, there was a struggle. They all centered on whether it was full deity or full humanity. And what John is, is stripping away from any view from his point in time, end of the, the first century, he's writing his gospel all the way through till today is that Christ was fully God and fully man. We are without excuse because that truth has been made obvious and John begins with his arrival. He says the word became flesh. And so he bluntly, and actually the, the wording in Greek is very blunt, uh, to say he's flesh is a word, sarx, which oftentimes speaks to sin nature, but is not speaking it here. It's saying he became meat. He became a body. He was real. It wasn't just some mispronunciation or mistake. He makes sure no one can twist it. There's no doubt that God became man. He didn't embody or possess a man. He didn't seem to appear, but himself became a man, took on full humanity without losing any of his deity. That's what it means with the word became flesh. He has put it at the basic level where no one can argue with what his meaning is. And so God, the word, speaking of Jesus, dwelt among us. Jesus, God incarnate, John is saying, didn't pop in for a minute. Instead, he lived on earth for 33 some years, depending on how you see the different calendar of events unfolding. He didn't just appear and then would have to believe everyone that may or may not have seen it. He lived on earth. He grew up, existed here on earth in perfection, and then died for our sins. It's not just a short period of time. The word dwelt means tabernacled with us. And it goes all the way back 
to Moses in the desert where God said, I will dwell among my people. Where is he going to dwell? He's going to dwell in the tabernacle. When they build the temple and Solomon dedicates the temple, God dwells in the temple. And so what John is saying is God dwelt among us in Jesus Christ in the most obvious way God has been among us. And because Jesus arrived and dwelt, God's glory is displayed and his glorious plan of salvation is made perfectly clear, a plan that centers in Jesus Christ. We see the unique one. When you see only begotten, we see the word begotten as conceived or born, and and the word begotten deals with the idea of uniqueness. Abraham, uh, Isaac is said to be Abraham's begotten, only begotten son. Well, he had more sons than that, a host more, and one before him, Ishmael, but it's the unique son. It's the only one. And so his glorious plan of salvation is now made perfectly clear, and it centers in Jesus Christ. We see God's full grace and truth on display when we look at Jesus. Jesus makes that clear in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is no way to God the Father except through Jesus Christ. John is actually the one that has listed there when there's people that come out and say, well, you know, those people, I think they're worshiping God the Father, but they just haven't believed in Jesus Christ. No, they're not worshiping God the Father. You cannot get to the Father except through the Son. I'm, I'm a, a passionate supporter of Israel. They're God's chosen people. I make no bones about that at all. I know we're in a political hotbed. Our world is wrong, and all the college students out there are wrong. They're horrifically wrong. They're sinfully wrong in what they're doing, and maybe someone here, if that steps on your toes, I hope it does. You need to go to Scripture and understand it. So I am passionate about Israel. I am also passionate in saying that I don't have a Judeo-Christian religion I believe in Jesus Christ because he is the fulfillment of Judaism. And so you cannot believe in the true God, God the Father, without believing in Jesus Christ. There is no other path. And John removes that from anybody. And so in two breaths, I'll say I'm passionate for God's people. Why? Because they're God's people, period. And then I'm also passionate about the fact that you need to believe in Jesus Christ and him alone, because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. He'll talk in John 8 about, you see the Father when you see me, I manifest the Father. That all comes out here. The way of salvation has arrived on earth. Jesus, the full expression of God's truth, bringing to us the full extent of God's grace. John the apostle then returns to the testimony of Jesus That's given by John the Baptist. And we have to distinguish them because John never refers to himself by name, the writer of the gospel. Uh, He talks now, he's worked through his arrival and what's taking place. And now he goes back and touches on the presentation. I call his presentation John the Baptist, the one that's announcing Christ to the world. And if you look through it, and we're going to see it in the next couple weeks, John the Baptist speaks boldly and constantly of Jesus, pointing to Christ's preeminence. And so he says, the one that comes after me is more important than me. And in their culture, when a teacher came on the scene, uh, preeminence is always given to the older person. So if I am teaching and someone comes to teach later, 
that person then would be, quote-unquote, less than I am. The Pharisees, in their arrogance, would come to, at some point, their father, and at some point, they achieved some massive status when their father had to subject himself to them because of their training. That was not the norm. I mean, you had to be a super Pharisee to attain to that level. And so as you're looking at this, John is basically telling the group, he's coming after me, but he's preeminent. He is the most important. He must have primary status. And then he makes a very bold claim. And I I find this fascinating because John does something here that the Pharisees try to stone Christ for later on. And he says this, Christ is preexistent. He says to everyone listening that Jesus is the most important, and then he tells them why. Because Jesus is God. That's why. Though Jesus is younger, he came before me. The same as when Christ said, before Abraham was, I am. And he uses that name for God that implies the eternality of God. That's where he's at. Christ is pre-existent. From the start of Christ coming to earth, his presentation by John the Baptist, it is clear from what John the Baptist is saying, and, and many come out, we'll, we'll see that. There's a host of people that come see John the Baptist because he is an amazing preacher, actually. He, he is a charismatic in the way that he draws everyone in. And his main thing is, repent for the kingdom of God is here. And this idea that Christ is coming after me, but he's before me because he's God and has existed for all eternity. And so for those who have believed, those who have received, we find the fullness of Christ, of constant filling, and in him experience grace for grace, which is a bit of an awkward phrase to us uh, because the, the word translates grace instead of grace. And so the implication is very John-esque. It is, it is very broad and deep. And so he's looking at this idea of grace that never runs out, grace after grace in an infinite supply from an infinite Savior. He's also hinting at what he's about to say next, that the law is there, which the law is not graceless. If you read the Old Testament, you don't miss God's grace. It shows up in every dealing he has with Israel. It's constant his grace, but then he's going to show grace instead of grace. In other words, he's saying Christ is the fulfillment of the law. You're going to get the full measure of grace in Christ, not just a grace you've seen of God through the Old Testament. So he turns our attention now to what has been done by Christ, and we look at his accomplishment. It says, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And then no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, and we're seeing that word over and over, the unique one, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He hath shown him. He's made it obvious. And what we see is that Jesus has come to bring the full expression of God's grace and truth to earth. Jews, and I'm going to throw us into it, so because I hate just picking on the Jewish people, God's people in this sense, but the Jews would have rested assured in their ability to know the law and to master it, though they never mastered the law. And then think about Christianity today. What are we so often pleased with? What are we so often assured in? 
how we keep the supposed laws that we've written for ourselves, the, the, the rules that we check off, which, which plagues Christianity. It's, it's, it's very human of us to do that, to look at God's rules and then find rules that we can check off and be happy with and therefore feel assured in the reality that we've kept the law, so to speak. We've mastered it. Grace can never be mastered. And so John states the law was given through Moses, though it came from God. Uh, and this is getting into the weeds of Greek, but the way he attaches the law to Moses, he attaches grace and truth to Christ even more so because Moses delivered the law that he got from God, yet grace and truth, the fulfillment of the law, is found in Jesus. And so what John is showing to everyone reading this, and he writes, remember, he's a Jew, he's a Palestinian Jew, that means he is from the promised land, he's from that region, and he's writing with that context. That's, he doesn't hide that. It's not cloaked, it's not covered. He's writing to all. It's coming out from Ephesus. He writes from a city that's not in the promised land. It's not Israel, but he is distinctively who he is. He walked with Christ, an eyewitness. He's an apostle. He grew up in this region. And so he writes this, and he writes in a way to, to show that Moses, and therefore the law, is subordinate and pointing forward to Jesus, that there's never been a time where the focus hasn't been Christ, is what he's trying to, to help them see. The law came through Moses, and the attachment of the law is more distant than Christ's fulfillment of the law because Moses didn't really give you the law. God gave you the law and used Moses to bring it to you. And so he's subordinate to Christ. All of Scripture points to Christ is what he's saying. This shows the continuity of God's Word and the object of it. God's Word has been about God and His majestic redemptive plan for humanity that's been in place before we were ever created. It's not when we tripped up that God decided he would redeem us. Before God created us, he had decided he would redeem us. So understand the love of God, even in creating what he already knew would fall and he would have to send his son to die for. And so everything God has written from in the beginning God which is Genesis 1.1, all the way to the end, has focused on what he's planning on doing, which is redeeming, saving his creation that he knew would fall. And so to wrap up his introduction, John reminds us of the uniqueness of Jesus. No one has seen God, yet God, in the person of Jesus Christ, has declared him. In other words, he's made it obvious now. We've seen the fullest revelation. We know God only by knowing the Son. As John MacArthur notes, a vague belief in God apart from the truth about Christ will not result in salvation. I think it's helpful if you're a believer to understand that. I know when I'm on a plane, and I've shared this before, and I, I, I think it's important to keep forefront, I am content when someone gives me a vague reference to God Christianity, church, you name it. And suddenly I'm in my mind, okay, good, you know, there's not a lost person next to me. I can ignore him now. This is, it's comfortable. And we become content with these vague references to faith. 
Oh, yeah, I believe. Yeah, I'm so, yeah. Oh, that Bible, that's a good book. Or I believe in that. Yeah, I've grown up. Yeah, I've grown up Christian. I've known about that. I'm American. I'm this, I'm that. You name it. We become very comfortable with it. And one of the things I'm hoping as believers, we lose being comfortable when we hear someone say that they believe in a very general way, that the gospel of John will shake us awake and say, no, I will not be content with that. I will not let that ease my so-called conviction to share the gospel. I hope if you don't know Christ as your Savior, but have a vague belief, which if you're sitting here, I'm assuming you have a vague belief in something, that you are confronted with the reality that you don't know Christ as your Savior, that your supposed general faith is useless. You might as well be an atheist if you don't put your trust in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus came to earth with a very specific purpose, and that was to redeem us. He came to earth as a human, uh, which as Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says, it involved him emptying himself. In other words, imagine what God has to let go of in, in, in our mind, the glory that comes with it, to become what he's created. Taking the form of a servant, which means taking upon himself humanity, being born in the likeness of men, humbling himself and being obedient to the point of death and then his death on the cross. Christ came with one purpose in mind. It trivializes him when you start saying he's a good guy or a good prophet or something else. The Muslim faith does that. They have no problem with Jesus Christ at all as a prophet. He's just one level less than Muhammad, and if you talk to one person, they may not even argue that point. They see Christ as a revered prophet, as Muhammad was a revered prophet. That he died for your sins is ridiculous to them, because in their faith, which is fabricated by man, God never stoops down to you. Their prayers are never personal. They're just appeasing the supreme God that they've created, which is Allah, which is not the same. Again, I'm going to say the same thing. And I had this conversation with a, a confused teenager years ago in Sunday school about aren't all the gods the same? They are not the same. There is only one true God and every other fabrication is a lie and it's not truth. And you only know the true God. You only worship the true God when you worship through his son. That's what John is kind of pounding to us as we go through it. Why? Because the Son came to redeem us, stooping down to be human so that He could be murdered by us, His creation, so that we could be redeemed. This had to be done. Hebrews 2.17 says, therefore, He had to be made like His brothers, like us, in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There was no other way. When Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying to God that there is another way, and he answers his own prayer by saying, not my will, but yours be done. Because there is no other way than the way that's there. The horrific death, the horrific separation from God the Father John leaves nothing vague or obscure about what saving faith entails. It is not general, and faith is not casual. 
It is not something we do on Sundays. It's not something we have as part of our heritage. That's garbage. Faith is very specific. It entails everything, and it's exclusively centered in the Son of God, the Word made flesh that dwelt among us so that He could redeem us. And there stands for you John's prologue, 18 verses that introduce his gospel and let us know that he will be fixated upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If talking about Jesus bores you, then I guarantee in the next year and a half, you're going to be bored to tears because John talks about Jesus Christ over and over again. But if Jesus Christ bores you, then I can guarantee you don't know the Savior in a saving way. You are destined for an eternity in hell because you must be in your faith focused on Him. We need this focus. We need to be reminded upon whom our salvation rests and be reminded to keep our Savior central to our faith because He is the center of our faith. It is most definitely not us. And I want to kind of go all the way back to the beginning But our propensity is to put ourselves center, to wander back into what we have done, to the things we feel we have accomplished, to being fine with a general faith. We tend to take him and put it to the side and reinstate ourselves on the throne because going all the way back to what I started with, we love to be God of our own lives, but we are not. So as we saw last week and today, a general faith or a faith that focuses on us, that focuses on what we think we've accomplished, is not a luxury that the Gospel of John gives to us. We must see the reality of Jesus, the reality of His purpose and His accomplishment, and respond biblically.